Are you a people pleaser? Constantly placing other people's needs above your own until you kind of don't even know what you want anymore. There are so many of us that learn people pleasing and perfectionism as survival tools that are now in the midst of a very difficult battle of learning how to prioritize our own needs and let go of the need to be perfect. It's a journey, but it is achievable. Today's guest is an expert on releasing perfectionism and moving away from people-pleasing and toward your authentic self. Welcome to Unleash Your Inner Creative with Lauren LaGrasso. I'm Lauren LaGrasso. I'm an award-winning podcast host and producer, singer-songwriter, and multi-passionate creative. This show sits at the intersection of creativity, mental health, self-development, and spirituality, and it is meant to give you tools to help you love, trust, and know yourself enough to claim your right to creativity and pursue whatever it is that's on your heart. Before we get into it, I want to let you know that Unleash is up for yet another Signal Award. It is so exciting. It's in the creativity and marketing category. It is a huge honor, and I need your help. You can vote for Unleash, which makes a huge difference for indie podcasters. There's a link in the show notes today and in my Instagram bio. It takes less than a minute to click through and vote for the podcast, and it means so much. So if you love the show and or me, please consider voting and telling your friends or family to vote. Every vote counts. <laughs> okay. Now to the guest. Her name is Kamini Wood. She's a certified life coach, the host of the Rise Up, Live Joy Your Way podcast, and writer. She's also the CEO of Live Joy Your Way, which is a coaching company that helps high performers and overachievers release perfectionism, people-pleasing, and move toward authenticity. Comedy is an amazing coach. I wanted to have her on because, frankly, I need help releasing this next level of people-pleasing and perfectionist tendencies that I have in me. And I know so many of you creative cuties do too. The desire to be perfect, to never make a mistake and keep everyone else happy except for yourself is a huge impediment to fully unleashing and being your full authentic self. I can't wait for you to get the tools that we share today. They will be life-changing. From today's chat, you'll learn how to start to overcome perfectionism and people-pleasing, how to have high standards while also being internally motivated, the steps to undo conditioning around fear of hurting other people's feelings. That's a huge one for me and super helpful what we talk about on the show. Learning more about core values and how to define yours and so much more. Okay, now here she is, Kamini Wood. Kamini, thank you so much for being here today. I am obsessed with your work. I love what you do. You have such a bright spirit. You're already so easy to talk to. And I'm just, I'm so happy we get to spend this hour together. Thank you for being on Unleash. Thank you for allowing me to spend this time with you. I so appreciate it. Oh my gosh, my pleasure. But what you talk about is very needed. So I appreciate it. And I wonder if, you know, you might just go into it a little bit the origin story of your perfectionism and your people-pleasing. What was like the inciting or many inciting incidents that led you to having these titles? Oh, goodness, yes. We have to go all the way back to the early years. <laughs> no, in all seriousness, I am the daughter of immigrant parents, born and raised in a small town in Connecticut, predominantly white town. I have a name like Comedy. Very much sticks out. Clearly not a white individual, definitely, and darker skin. So being this kindergartner entering into school, you know you're different. You know you're different because everybody's butchering your name. Teachers are afraid to actually call on you in class because they're afraid of mispronouncing your name. And so there is an element as a five-year-old trying to figure this out. You know, how do you fit in? Because really what ends up happening is there's a sense of not belonging. And so in order to solve that, what I did as this little five-year-old girl who didn't really know the ins and outs of what was happening, she just wanted to fit in, realized that if people were happy with her and she was doing the things that they wanted, she would be accepted. And so that's kind of where the people-pleasing started from. And only obviously as an adult and I've done myself work have I been able to track it back. But really, truly, when I go back, that five-year-old, the six-year-old in first grade wanted so badly to just not stick out anymore, wanted to belong. And so she was this little girl figuring out, well, if I do things for people and they're happy with me, then they'll be okay. Uh, and, and you're not sticking out anymore. The perfectionism was an element of that too. If you don't fail, you don't mess up, you're not bringing attention to yourself, you're kind of one of the group. But beyond that, I mentioned my parents were immigrants. They were extraordinarily hardworking individuals who were trying so hard to provide for my sister and I. 
And so they worked long hours. They would go to work. You know, I was a latchkey kid. They dropped me off in the morning and they would go to work at 730 in the morning and they would come home at 6 or 630. And, you know, it's a long day. And so what I learned was extraordinary work ethic and performance ethic. But also through that, my younger self didn't want to be a burden. I didn't want to cause them something to worry about because they were busy. They were doing things. They were trying really hard, again, to provide for us. So perfectionism, right? Don't be a burden. And so it's if I do things well and I do it perfectly and I don't really mess up, they're not going to need to take their attention away from what they're working on. So another layer. And so that's why I say we go all the way back to that age because that's where it started. But then, of course, my own personality, I'm a high achiever. That adds to it. And, you know, over the years, it just kind of grows from there. Yeah. And thank you so much for sharing that. I mean, something also that stuck out to me from what you shared was that the teachers wouldn't call on you when you put your hand up. And I'm curious, that had to give you a message too, right? Like, how do you think that piece affected you? It absolutely affected me in the sense of, in two different ways. One, I was already an introverted child, right? Because I was already knowing that I was different. And so it fed into that message that you're different and you're so different that we're not going to call on you. We're not going to let you be a part of this group. We're not going to let you participate. And as a matter of fact, just recently, I remembered an incident in second grade where we were having a Christmas get-together. I hadn't remembered this for a little while, and then once I remembered it, I realized I hadn't shared it with anybody. I kept it to myself all these years. Was this class Christmas party, everybody was supposed to bring in a gift, wrap it, and then everybody, we'd put it in a pile, and everybody would get a gift back. And because I always wanted other people to go first, I stood back and let everybody go, and we got to me, and there wasn't any left. And I said to my teacher, there's not a gift, like there's nothing left. And she said, well, that's probably because you didn't bring one in because your family probably doesn't celebrate. And I said, no, but, and I won't say her name, but I said, no, actually that's my gift right there. And I pointed to one with the wrapping paper and all. And she said, no, that's not yours. And I remember I never actually, unless my parents listen to this podcast, which they probably will because I listen to all of them. I had never actually shared that story with my parents. Again, another element of I don't want to burden them. But that was another experience of, you're different. You don't belong. And that came from the person in charge of the class, you know, that safe person. And I'm not putting down teachers by any stretch of the imagination. Oh, I had a terrible second grade teacher. Don't worry. We can hate on them all you want. She fucked me up for life. (laughs) It's like so many of my core wounds are in my second grade classroom. Many teachers are great. Some are not. Some are troubled. And unfortunately, teaching like parenting when you haven't dealt with your trauma is one of the most dangerous positions to be in. Yes. Thank you. Thank you. Yes. Some are amazing. Yeah. But those who have not dealt with their own stories or their own biases end up bringing them into the classroom. Absolutely. And that happens with parents too. I talk about conscious parenting and it is about you have to deal with your stuff or you're going to project that onto your kids, which was my story. I was projecting people pleasing. I was projecting perfectionism. And so people will say, comedy, well, how did you get here? Well, there was a professional side of what I was doing in my work and you know, I was the project management officer for a dot com. And so running individuals, talking to people, what do you need to get this project done? Ran a law firm practice. What do you guys need to be successful? So there was always the how do I build people up aspect, but it was the self work, right? It was the recognizing, oh my goodness, my kids are mirroring back some of this. I need to take a look at this. Did that self work? recognized I can now take these experiences and my professional training as well as the certifications I've done, I can combine all of those and create this business that now helps other people unpack and understand themselves on that deeper level. So brilliant. I mean, it's interesting that you bring that up too, because I think that those of us that have these tendencies can, not always, but often do fall into those roles where we're being supportive, right? Where we're the one behind the scenes, we're the one amping people up. We're the ones keeping it all together so someone else can shine. And on one of the podcasts I listened to you on, you talked about how you stepped into the limelight from behind the scenes. And I'm curious how that feeds into this whole journey of healing and recovering from perfectionism and people pleasing. What did you have to do in order to own your own power and say, you know what, I too have a voice and I too have a dream? I love that question because you're calling me out because that's the truth. I was the person who always allowed everybody else to shine. 
I was fine with that. And I'm not, I would never say I should not have done that. But for me, in order to find that confidence and that voice was I had to start owning who I was. I had to recognize, like I said before, you know, this story from five or six year old me, it's not a problem. It wasn't something I had to fix. I just needed to understand it because with that understanding, I could now use that as a mechanism to not just understand myself, but then work through those false beliefs, like work through the belief of I don't belong or my voice doesn't matter. You know, when teachers wouldn't pick on me to answer a question, my voice does matter. And recognizing that those were these false narratives that I had created and I had taken from those experiences, challenging them with, well, I do have these opinions. I do have these ideas. I do have the ability to hear people and listen to them in such a way that they feel witnessed themselves. I can take those gifts and I can actually lean into them and step into that light and recognize that that's how I can actually pay it forward. So I'm still in service of people. I'm just doing it from the place of actually standing, not in front of them telling them how to go, but I don't have to be behind the scenes anymore. I can actually have these direct conversations and they can move themselves forward. Yeah. It's like, it's a relationship. I only recognize this because I also have a similar thing where I've helped a lot of people build up their careers. And now I'm getting to a place where I'm like, but I want my voice to be at the forefront of my own life. And I still want to be in service of people, but I want my voice to be the center of my own world instead of other people's voices. And so I really relate to it. And I wonder, how did you do that? Like if somebody has a similar limiting belief where they feel like they always have to be in the background, but they're yearning to step into the light of their own life, what sort of beliefs might you have to rewire or rewrite? The beliefs that I had to rewire were that I don't belong, I don't matter, or I'm not enough. I have to prove my enoughness or my worthiness, really. Because as a people pleaser, most often there's this need to be needed because you're constantly trying to prove that you're worthy. And so letting go of that. But then beyond that, I had to give myself permission to name what my needs are and also what my values are. Because so often as a people pleaser, we also find that we lose track of our own needs and also we lose track of what are our own values because we're so concerned with making sure everybody else is okay that they're living in alignment with their values or that their needs are being met. And so for me, that was the catalyst was, oh, wow, I can actually name that I need I need to be respected in a conversation? Go figure. <laughs> Imagine that. Imagine, imagine. I need to actually maybe take care of things that I want to actually take care of instead of over-functioning and overdoing for everybody else. Or I need, for instance, not to be ultimately responsible for every single person's feelings. Oh, wow, that's great. Ah, wow, I don't have to actually be responsible for that. I can I can just support them and love on them, but they're ultimately responsible for their own feelings. These were those moments of like, oh, oh, okay, Taking those, those are going to break down those old belief systems pretty quickly, and they're going to allow for that room. Now, would I sit here and say that everything is perfect and I never have those moments? Absolutely not, because we're evolving. We're always evolving, right? So there's going to be another iteration, you know, that comes back around and it's like, oh, there's the story of like, I'm not enough. All right, what's this one about? But now I'm in a different place where I can recognize it and I can come back to center in a shorter amount of time. I really, I tell people all the time that this isn't about getting rid of things. It's about understanding. And when we understand, we actually recognize that when it comes up in maybe a different iteration, we're able to then meet it and work through it rather than it taking over and running running the show. Ooh, okay. I, <laughs> that's good. I want to ask you more about like how you actually made the shift. But since you brought it up, I feel like I need to lean into what you just said, which is I'm not responsible for other people's feelings. I think... There's a lot of things holding me back in life right now. One thing I've realized in the recent months is that I have a chronic fear of hurting people's feelings. And I think it's because I feel responsible for how they feel. Like even with something as simple as someone pitching themselves to come on my show, because I've been rejected so many times in my creative career and I know what it feels like and I know how painful it can be. I'm projecting my experience onto them and being like, if I tell them they can't come on my show, I'm going to ruin their day. They're going to feel bad about themselves. And so it becomes this huge task just to tell someone, you know what, I don't think it's a fit right now, but thank you so much for reaching out. And I'm getting better. But 
for people like us or or just like that have this same kind of fear of hurting other people or feeling responsible for other people's feelings, what are the steps one needs to take to start to undo that conditioning? Well, I'll offer at first a distinction, a distinction between contributing to and responsible for. So when, for instance, you're telling somebody, I'm sorry, that's not a good fit. It's recognizing that you might be contributing to a feeling that they have, but ultimately as their own individual person, they're responsible for that feeling. And one thing that we can remind ourselves of is if we take on that responsibility, we're actually robbing that individual of their own autonomy. By allowing them to be responsible for their feelings and giving that back to them, we're actually encouraging their own autonomy and their own being and their own person. But in terms of our own steps, it's a lot of self-talk. It's about naming and bringing to the awareness, okay, I am taking on the responsibility for how somebody is feeling right now. What's actually true here? What's true is I was honest with them. I was respectful with them. I told them exactly what I needed to share. I didn't do it in a cruel way. And then I can release the ownership of how they chose to respond to this. For me, it's all about self-talk. It's about naming, becoming aware of what's coming up, and then challenging with what's actually true in order to move through it. That's good. So let's talk about how you actually made the jump into coaching. Because you mentioned you worked in .com, then you worked for your husband's law firm, helping him build that. And then you finally took this leap to go after your own dreams and your own voice. Tell me about making that leap. Like, how did you come out even to your family and tell them, hey, I'm going to do this? Like, what did that look like? And just take me through that transition period. Well, first of all, I'm not going to sugarcoat it. It was super scary. It was absolutely scary because it was the first time that I was really stepping into my own, this is what I actually want. I mean, if we think about it, for 15 years, I was essentially uh, making sure that my husband's dream was realized, meaning that was what he wanted. He wanted to run his own law practice, and I was doing everything behind the scenes to ensure that that happened. And in the meanwhile, helping to build up the employees as, you know, what do you guys want? How do you want to expand? So it was scary. It was scary to say, oh, I'm going to actually do this thing that I is calling me. Truth be told, while I had this entrepreneurial spirit because .com and then running from the ground up law practice, it was scary also because this was going to be mine. Like ultimately I was in the forefront. I needed to actually be the face of it. And I was always behind the scenes. In addition, it was scary to bring it up to the family, not my kids. My kids always are just like, go, mom, whatever you want, mom. They're like the best in the world, honestly. My husband was not exactly excited at first because here you're basically saying, wait, like I'm going to have to figure out the whole firm on my own. What do you mean? What are you doing? And that was a really uncomfortable conversation. And ultimately, it tested me in terms of my dedication to what it was that I felt called to do. And I had to acknowledge his feelings and still say, I hear you and I'm not just disappearing. I'm going to be here to support as I transition off and I'm going to do this. (laughs) Yes. Yes, she is. Wow. I mean, honestly, too, what could have been a better test for what you were about to go teach people to do than having that conversation and making that transition with your husband? Arguably one of the people you want to please most in the world, your partner, your life partner, and having to come to him with that and say, you know what? No, this is my truth. I love you. I support you. And I have to do this for myself. And to stand in that power. And and yes, to your point, being able to do that because what I was attempting to do was build a business based on helping people understand themselves and live into their own human potential. I mean, that's what I do in a nutshell. Woo. It was walk in the walk, walk in the talk. What is the saying? Walk in the talk, talk the walk. I don't know. I mess up cliches all the time. (laughs) (laughs) Me too. (laughs) I make up my own. (laughs) Me too. I thought, you know that saying too big for your britches, like pants? Yes. I thought it was too big for your bridges for two decades. (laughs) So- Hate to hate to say it, but this is, they've got a long list of them. So you're you're safe here. This is a safe space. <laughs> <laughs> That's an incredible story. And then, so how long ago was that? How long have you been building this business for? About six years at this point. Wow. So now you have all this experience working with people, helping them move through these things and own their power, become authentic. 
Mm-hmm. What would you say tend to be the core wounds of those of us who fall into these patterns of perfectionism and people pleasing? I would say the biggest core wounds are just not feeling that they're enough, not feeling worthy. Many times it's, I don't deserve. I don't deserve love. I don't deserve these things. And then also the not belonging. So the ones that I've kind of mentioned, those tend, tend to be the the main ones that come up. I would say overall, I'm not enough seems to be across the board. It doesn't matter whether I'm dealing with a doctor or a lawyer, which I work with, all the way to stay-at-home moms and dads who are also dealing with the same I'm not enough. Because underneath all of the different walks of life that we come from, again, we are all these, we're human. We're all human beings and we're all dealing with similar, not the same, but similar things and beliefs that hold us back. And so while I might have an I'm not enough belief that started because of my story that I shared, somebody else might have an I'm not enough belief because of a totally different story. But at the end of the day, we're still dealing with those limiting beliefs that we have to work through in order to move ourselves forward. And oftentimes, we go through life and we're on autopilot. We don't even know that that's what the subconscious is running on. And usually there's some type of moment, whether it be a catalyst moment or some type of like in with the professionals that I deal with, sometimes there's a layoff or there's something that shifts within their profession that it pops up. Sometimes people just suddenly realize they look around and they're like, I have no idea. I'm totally disengaged from my world. Like what is happening? And those are those moments where we start to say, okay, let's take a look at what's actually underneath. What is the subconscious filtering everything through? Yeah. So, okay. One thing I hear a lot of people say, I even have heard people on the podcast that you've done that I've listened to today, like talk about this. They say, I'm a recovering people pleaser or I'm a recovering perfectionist. That sounds great. How does one recover? Like, I would love to start recovering. I just, I feel like I'm very much in the thick of it. And like, I keep hearing people say that and I'm like, it sounds really nice. Like where, like for someone like me who is for sure a people pleaser and a perfectionist, like where do I start? You know, it's funny you say that because I've actually said that about myself. I'm a recovering people pleaser and I'm a recovering perfectionist. But I always say it with the caveat that that means I'm still working on it because there's always new iterations of it. And so that's why I say that the work that I do is never about fixing. I really try to explain this to people that I don't come with this idea that you're broken or there's something wrong with you. There's nothing to fix. It's about can you understand yourself on a deeper level? Because when you have that understanding, you then can figure out what committed actions you want to take to move through. So as a perfectionist or a people pleaser, it's understanding you know, what is this experience that I'm having? So I just fell into a people-pleasing mode. This still happens to me multiple times. And I'll just ask myself, okay, that's really interesting. What was I experiencing just then? What was I trying to experience by entering that people-pleasing part of me? Because usually with recognition of what we were trying to experience, that understanding allows to say, allows me at least to say, okay, I was trying to experience belonging, for instance, okay, well, there must be a different way that I can get to that belonging without having to overgive and overfunction. So almost pattern interrupts, right? So that's why I say, I do joke that I'm recovering, but I'm in active recovery. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, that's how I feel. I mean, listen, I actually had someone on my podcast recently who said that she was healed, like from a lot of her pain. And listen, who am I to say she doesn't? She does deep somatic work. So maybe she's truly getting to the bottom of those things. And I definitely let her have that. And I think it could be true. Who knows? There's so much in the universe. How can we know everything? But like, I feel like for most of us, healing is a lifelong journey. You know, like it's just a continual unraveling. Like I once heard Jen Sincero say, new level, new devil. And like you said, it's like you get to one level of transcendence and then you get tested again to make sure you really learn the lesson and then you have to keep going. I mean, Yeah. So I'm with you on that. Okay. So if I'm understanding this correctly, with the people pleasing or even the perfectionism thing, it's kind of like understand the core wound. And then step two is see the areas where it's starting to pop up in your life. And then what comes next? So once you become aware of it, right, and you're starting to see the patterns, you can start to ask those important questions. As I said, like, what am I trying to experience? Or what are the thoughts or the feelings that come up with this experience? Because when we can name those things, now we can, especially if it's a thought, we can ask ourselves, is there a way that I can shift this thought ever so slightly? Is there another possible thought that I can have? Like, so for instance, with the responsibility for 
somebody's feelings, can I shift it into a different thought such as, again, I've contributed to their feelings, but I'm not responsible for. We're just shifting it ever so slightly, but that allows room now for maybe some different feelings and emotions to be present, which then allows for different actions to happen. Mm. A lot of anxiety typically, at least for me, like accompanies these kind of things. So like if I am going to set a boundary with someone or reject someone's offer to come on my podcast, I feel like anxiety over like, oh my God, how are they going to respond? What are they going to say? Are they going to be mad at me? Is that relationship going to be severed now? What do you do with that piece? Yes. And that's a hard one because I would say what, like 90 to 95% of all anxieties are fears that we're actually not going to be okay. Yeah. Right. So just what you were saying, right? Like, oh, what if this relationship is severed? Really what we were saying there is I'm going to be abandoned, right? So that's like the fear of abandonment. And am I going to be okay? So it's just noticing and naming like, oh, there are the thoughts that, and you name all the thoughts that you're having, notice and name them. And then it is about coming back to the present moment. Again, anxiety is always is generally future tripping. We're worried about how is this going to unfold? Will I be able to handle it? All of those things. And the truth is, You will be able to handle it because you're here, which means you've handled everything that has happened thus far. So we have empirical evidence that you will (laughs) be able to handle it. (laughs) So we come back to the present moment. We say, okay, here in this moment, I'm going to connect to myself. I'm going to connect to this present moment. What would be an action that I could take that would be meaningful for me right now? What is a values-based action? So for you, in terms of like, just as this example with the podcast, it's like, okay, I'm noticing all of these thoughts around relationships going to be severed. They're going to hate me. They're never going to listen to my podcast again. Whatever the thoughts are, we name them. We come back to this present moment and then you ask yourself, okay, what is something meaningful for me right now? Well, what's meaningful for me is putting the efforts into my podcast right now. So maybe I'm going to go and figure out what my next show is going to be about. Whatever the thing may be that gets you moving towards where you want to go instead of getting hijacked by the anxiety. Because anxiety is just part of life, right? We, it's about can we expand ourselves to allow it to be there, but go ahead and put our thoughts and energies into the things that are meaningful and valuable for us. We don't have to fight the anxiety. Mm. Yeah, that's so good. I mean, it's something I've thought about a lot because I think many of us, myself included, spend a lot of time asking why or why is this happening? What's going on? But not trying to actually find the solutions. And I think what you just gave is such a brilliant example of it. Like instead of worrying about all the things that could happen, think about what you do want to happen and go toward that. You did bring up fear. And I think that, I mean, that's a big part of this pod because I think fear robs us from going after a lot of our heart's desires. I'm curious what your current relationship is with fear and how you process it when it comes up. Oh, I have a really deep relationship with fear. Are you kidding? (laughs) We're together. (laughs) We go way back. We're going steady. (laughs) The way that I process fear is, again, a lot of what I talk about is it's about becoming aware, right? So notice it and name it. And for me, it's also then I need to name how I'm scaring myself because fear is just, it's the first part of it. But then how am I scaring myself is where we can ask ourselves, okay, and then what happens? And if that happens, then what happens? And if that happens, then what happens? Because ultimately we get to this bottom level of what we're actually scared of. And with that awareness, we can ask ourselves, well, okay, so either what do I want to do about that? Is that even true? What have I done 100% of the time? I've already worked through this. Like I'm going to be okay. So I can trust myself and I can work through whatever it may be. So sometimes like a fear of Getting on podcasts, you know, I used to have a fear of guesting. It's like, oh my gosh, but like I could say the wrong thing. Okay, so then what happens? Well, then I've said the wrong thing and I can just either correct it or on the next podcast I can say something different. Right, you know, so you kind of go down and really for me, it used to be a fear of like, well, I'm not good enough. I'm not, I was just scared of not being good enough to be on the podcasts. And ultimately it was, well, if I'm not on the podcast, like it's okay, I'll find a different outlet. I don't have to do podcasts. I can blog. I can do something else. So there's a way, once we really name what we're scared of, we can then say, okay, so what do I want to do about this? What committed action do I want to take? That's great. And you've also talked about like you are a high achiever. Like that's just part of who you innately are. How can we have high standards while also loving and accepting ourselves and being internally motivated? Like this is one of the hardest pieces for me to understand in life How do you have high standards while being internally motivated? 
high standards are possible while being internally motivated through using self-compassion. And I didn't know that for the longest time. So for the longest time, I thought that it was the inner critic or shame that would push me forward to be better and be that high achieving person. And only through understanding that shame can work for an amount of time, but eventually you're going to plateau because eventually the I'm bad or I'm not good enough is going to take over. So in order to be high achieving and to have that intrinsic motivation to keep going, it is about kindness over judgment. It's about giving yourself permission to do something to maybe mess it up and to ask yourself, all right, well, that didn't work out. So how can I take this information now and move forward? Versus you're terrible, you're wrong, you suck at this, you can't go forward, which would, again, plateau. So the way you continue to be that high achiever is through utilizing things like kindness over judgment, utilizing things like common humanity, recognizing that you don't have to go it alone. You can ask other people, how have they dealt with a similar situation? Brene Brown talks about the strength and vulnerability. That's absolutely what this is. You don't become weak because you're vulnerable. That's actually a huge strength to be able to say, this is what I'm feeling and this is what I need. And then mindfulness, right? Being in this present moment. As a high achiever, a lot of times you'll get caught up on that future tripping. You know, what's going to happen? What's going to happen? And so in order to stay innately and intrinsically motivated, it's about staying in this present moment. My oldest daughter is actually a professional ballerina. And my second oldest plays Division One sports. And so this has been something that we've talked a lot about within our home too, is especially ballet, that is just tends to be a very cutthroat industry. And a lot of times there is shame that comes along and it's it's almost like, I'm going to shame you to be better. Yes. And we've had to do a lot of talk, her and I, around it's not about shaming to be better. It's about, okay, what worked well? What didn't work well? What do I need to learn more? What can I do to improve this? How can I use my strengths to maybe counteract some of these weaknesses? That's where it's at and that will propel you further and for a longer period of time. That's how we can still continue to achieve. And also the final thing I will say is shifting the idea of high achieving, not just from the things that you're doing, right? The accomplishments. It's also who are you being as you accomplish those things? And that was a huge shift for me because the achievement was always based on checkboxing the doing and being able to add in, okay, in comedy, who are you as you're doing these things? Oh, wow. You're like really resilient or wow, you showed up extraordinarily brave today or wow, that took a lot of patience. Matching the thing that you're doing with how you're showing up is another way to really expand out that hyperachiever mindset. Wow. I love that. So while you can also look at your literal physical accomplishments, like if you won an award or you hit a new milestone in your business or for your daughter, if she got into a great new company, you also can look at how you're showing up in those moments. So yeah, I just never would have thought of that. Like, I think that's why so many times, like if you don't achieve something, you feel like a complete failure instead of looking at hey, I tried, I learned something new, I got closer to my ultimate dream, I was a really nice person even when I was feeling defeated. You know, that's so beautiful and I think what a beautiful takeaway for you at home listening to think of as you're going your creative path because there's a lot of ups and downs. You know, from being in a creative field yourself and raising a creative daughter and I'm sure all your kids are creative, everyone is, but like especially your ballerina daughter, like I think of the pain of being an artist. And, you know, I think we can sometimes suffer from these things even more because unlike sports, there's no like, absolutely, yes, this is right. This is absolutely a win or this is absolutely a loss. It's like there's so much taste that's involved in our success. Oh, there's so much subjectivity that it can be actually a little bit disorienting, I think, for artists, right? Because you can go out there and you can perform And you might think it was amazing. And then, of course, you're going to hear people who would categorize it as a loss, so to speak, or vice versa, right? And it's just recognizing the subjectivity that's involved in the arts itself and allowing, and that's where self-compassion is so important. It's, well, you know, who was I during that performance? How did I show up? What was my takeaway? Kindness over judgment. That's how we work through through that. Yeah. And I wondered too, you know, because I think of your daughter, I think of myself, I had like a really 
abusive choir teacher, another teacher. I had amazing teachers too, but I had a crazy choir teacher. She's passed away since then, rest in peace. But she like would throw chairs at children. She she ended up getting fired because she rear-ended somebody twice to quote unquote teach them a lesson. But prior oh, to gosh. that, she she was somebody probably who should never have been around kids, let alone sensitive, creative kids who were just trying to sing a song. And in those situations, sadly, I ended up quitting choir because I'm like, I'm not going to subject myself to this abuse and to a toxic environment anymore. So I quit something that I love more than anything in the world, which was singing. But like when you are, you have to be around somebody like that who is shame inducing, who is toxic. Like, how can you possibly like keep yourself safe and protect your heart and creativity and love in those moments when there's somebody who's like attacking it? That is so hard because there are those moments when we can't leave. And this comes up a lot with even with individuals in the workplace who are in toxic work environments. Usually what I will encourage people to do is to talk about it because when you're in a toxic environment, it is so easy to be put in that place of internalized shame. And shame really is fostered when it goes unwitnessed. So allowing your safe people in, allowing that to be where you let people in and know what's happening so that they can be your witness. Because if we are witnessed and we're talking about what's happening and we're not gaslighting ourselves and saying it didn't happen or I'm making it bigger than it is or I'm overly sensitive, but we're saying this is actually what's happening and we're discussing it with people that we feel safe with, that we can be vulnerable with, it at least has an output so that the shame doesn't take hold. And it is also about setting boundaries, as many boundaries as you can when you're in that environment with that individual, just figuring out ways to potentially communicate what's okay and what's not okay. I think that the teacher-student dynamic is a lot more difficult because of the fact that they're in a position of power. And even in workplace, it can be difficult if it's like a superior versus a team member that you're equal to. Because again, power, right? And that's where abuse happens, where somebody is in power or has the perceived power over another person, and they're putting them in a position where they don't feel like they can defend themselves. And so that's why we talk about this with like emotional abuse. It's somebody has power over you. You don't feel like you have the ability to speak up and defend yourself, and you you end up being the subject of emotional or verbal abuse that way. Physical abuse, similar, but it's you're physically constrained and you can't get out. So in those instances too, it's even more important to find ways that you can talk about it because again, people who are being abused in that way, they're internalizing shame because ultimately they're walking away from that thinking that there's something wrong with them. If we can't get out of those dynamics, and in that case, I almost say maybe it was an empowered decision to leave that particular dynamic and wouldn't have been lovely if there had been another choir to join. But it's to say that sometimes we can't. Sometimes we can't. Look, people who are at work, they can't just pick up and leave because that's their livelihood. That is how they're paying for their family to survive. So we have to find ways to work through it. And it's talk about it, set boundaries, and protecting your own, like put up those energetic boundaries too, reminding that's them, that's not me. What they're saying isn't true. This is what's true about me. That internal dialogue is so important. Yeah. And let's say you had a coaching client who came to you post being in a toxic work environment. How do you start to take them through unraveling that and realizing they were not the problem? It is. It's an unshaming process. So it is about helping them name, you know, what actually occurred, what happened, and then being a witness for them and having them be their own witness and having them recognize what's actually true in terms of who they were in that situation, you know, that they actually were doing the best they could. There's nothing wrong with them. And then can they look at that event with a different lens? I mean, eventually that's where we're trying to go to is can I look at that event in my life with a different lens instead of the lens of I'm bad or I'm wrong or I was wrong. And, you know, you talked about the shame voice and how that has a big part in people pleasing, perfectionism, all of the above. Mm-hmm. When that voice comes up, because it inevitably will, how do you kind of like talk back to it? Could you walk us through an example of what it could look like when the shame voice comes up and how to talk back to it, put it in its place? Yeah, you're going to think that this is somewhat counterintuitive, but what we have to do is let it talk first and actually say it out loud and witness it with our own ears, actually hear it. Because when we hear that voice, we suddenly are like, holy crap, that is really mean and disgusting and gross and awful. And that's not even true about me. 
And so it is about allowing ourselves to be our own witness. And when we're talking specifically about shame, again, it goes back to what I said before, a lot of the work is about becoming aware of it and not just pushing it aside. So when we're becoming aware of it, we're naming it and we're really calling it out and we're calling it out into almost the public forum. And we're like, hey, I equate shame to mold. I say, if we can bring it out into the sunlight, it actually will die. It'll actually dry out and die. But if we keep it hidden in the dampened, you know, basement, it's going to keep growing and growing and growing. And so that's what I'm really saying is we bring it out. You let it be seen. You let it be heard in a loving way to yourself. But you have to go through that process so that we can be like, mm, yeah, that's not true. That's actually just somebody else's voice. Yeah. Repurposes our own for sure. I think of that a lot. And something else I've heard you talk about is core values. Can you go through what those are and how we can start to find them for ourselves? So core values are really what's the most meaningful thing to you, what what makes you tick. And oftentimes, most adults have not taken the time to figure out what their core values are. They've assimilated them just through family, society, culture. They just kind of said, yeah, that's what is meaningful to me. Core values is taking the time to say, okay, out of – if I look at experiences that really brought me joy, you know, what were the elements of that? What made that meaningful? Conversely, looking at those moments of regret or sadness, what made those moments regretful or sad? Because on the flip side of that is usually what we value, right? Like that where we say like on the flip side of grief is love. Well, on the flip side of the moments that we regret or we feel sad, there's usually a reason why we feel sad and it's because a value wasn't being met. So we can play with it those ways and we figure out what are those things and are there similarities between the happy and the sad? And then we can pull out those real core things that we need to help us move forward. So for me, one of mine um, that I've learned over the course of being an adult is like emotional safety is absolutely required. It's a value of mine, like full stop. You know, my value in terms of if family tends to be one, well, family is valuable. Like for me, it's motherhood. Like there is a true value in motherhood, you know, and, and it's giving yourself permission that, you know, your values might grow and evolve as you do. Like, so for instance, I happen to work with teenagers too. And so some teens will be like, these are my values. And then as we work through and we get to college, suddenly the values start to shift a little bit. It's okay. I mean, yeah. we're not saying these have to be your values forever and always, but they're my values for today, right? And then from that, those can be your anchor point as you're trying to figure out, keep saying committed action, those can be your anchor point for the committed action. Because if you're taking action that's meaningful and you're tying it back to your values, you're going to continue to move yourself forward. Mm, I love that. So why does that feel a little scary to me? Because I've heard people bring up the core values before. And I feel like I'm when people bring it up, I'm being tested or something. And I feel like I'm going to get the wrong answer. Why does that feel scary? Well, part of it, I think, is uh, I, I hate to say it, but I think it's society. We always feel like we're being tested when we ask <laughs> when we're asked a question like that. Like, oh, I don't want to answer this the wrong way. <laughs> but I think part of it is also because we're asking ourselves to do that inner work. And whenever we go into that inner work, there's a vulnerability involved in it. And there's a what if I get rejected if I say something and somebody doesn't agree? And it's recognizing that other people don't have to agree with your values because they're yours. Mm. That's like one thing that is, it's just yours. You don't actually have to share it <laughs> with anybody. It's yours. <laughs> and once you set them up, you kind of just use it as a filter for wherever you'll go in life. Like if these things do not exist inside of me or in this relationship, then it is not for me. Especially like, for instance, with um, friendships, we find this with friendships. I, again, dealing with young adults, emerging adults, a lot of times we're talking about, well, I don't understand why this friendship is the way it is. And it, if we unpack it together, it's because there's a misalignment in values. It's two people trying to force a relationship together where there's not an alignment of what's important and meaningful to each individual. And it's okay sometimes, especially, especially in those emerging adult years, right? You're going to find yourself starting to outgrow relationships because values start to diverge. And it's giving ourselves permission to allow, you know, that's just part of growing up. At all ages. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm like, hmm, maybe I should start to think about that a little more. I love that one of yours is motherhood. And you have five kids. So amazing. So badass. I wonder if you will join this very informal study I'm doing on my show. I've interviewed about 250 people at this point, And so far, so I'm going to back this up. 
I used to have this conception that before I had kids, I had to accomplish everything because once I had kids, I was just going to have to hunker down and be a mother and I couldn't do anything else and I would be totally consumed. And through doing this podcast, I have found that every single person I've had on the pod has had their greatest success post-parenthood. But the one that surprised me the most, just because of the conceptions I had and my own kind of biases about being a woman, I thought the most amazing ones was that every single woman has had their greatest success post-child or post-children. So it seems to certainly be the case with you. And I wonder if you'd speak a little bit to that. A hundred percent. I'm part of that group. Yeah. And for me, it was because my biggest growth was after being a mom, because I, as I mentioned earlier, started seeing my kids emulate parts of me, like they were mirroring things back. And that was my catalyst to say, oh, I need to take a look at this. And so when I did that, now I'm doing the self-work. And what we have found most often is for us to have that launch off, we have to don't deal with that inner work. We have to understand ourselves better. So yeah, I'm part of the group, the group that had our success after becoming a mom. Uh, and again, I, I've said, I think on other podcasts too, my kids have been my best teachers, continue to be my best teachers, challenge me, humble me, and have taught me, you know, just truthfully love. Yeah, they seem amazing. And I think that's such a beautiful thing too, to remember that like your kids don't have to be the end of your creativity. In fact, they can be the catalyst to your creativity. Like who better to learn creativity from than a child who hasn't had the world ring it out of them, you know? <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. Yes. And they inspire us to take chances. You yeah. know, if we look at a little kid, they're not worried about messing up and they get up and start walking. They fall down. They get back up. Yeah. They don't know any <laughs> different. And I love that you said when you decided to take the leap, your kids were like, yeah, mom, you can do it. We're so proud of you. They still say it to me. <laughs> Good. They should. There's a lot to be proud of. I know that you do incredible one-on-one -on -one coaching. Could you take me through a little bit? Like, what does working with you look like? So when I work with somebody one-on-one, -on -one, we work over a course of time. Uh, usually we work either for six months and sometimes I work with people for a year and really what it is is doing that deeper work, right? Again, it's not therapy. It's not let me diagnose you with anything. It's let me be your witness and support system to help you understand yourself better. And as you're understanding yourself better and working through those beliefs that are holding you back and we're breaking them down, understanding where they're coming from, challenging them. Taking that awareness and saying, okay, now also let's do the work on the values. Let's do the work on the needs. Like what are your core needs? Let's shift those core beliefs. And with that, what goals do you have for yourself? And then what committed actions? So it's about kind of realigning yourself with your own potential, with your own self, and then moving you through that process to get kind of catapult you on that way of whatever goals you're setting for yourself, whether personally or professionally. There's always that client-focused you know, I'm talking to my client about what they need to talk about, not some pre-existing agenda that I've come up with. I love that. You're in the moment. Hashtag improv. <laughs> <laughs> I actually think that's the best way to coach, though, because it's authentic and it's like what's true coming to you. I feel like when I do creative coaching, mostly on the show, but sometimes off air, too, and I feel like it's the one time in my life I'm totally present because I have to be in it with those people. Yes. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. And it's so amazing. And what I have said to people time and time again is I'll start my day and then the day's over. And I kind of don't really know where the time went because I was just in every single moment with each person that was in front of me. And there's actually, it's such a cool feeling because there's not this feeling of like, oh, I just so exhausted. And I just, yeah, there's not that. It's just like, oh, that was fun. She's on purpose, folks. That's what it feels like. That's how life can be. That's such a beautiful example. So I have two final questions for you. The core tenant or goal of this show is to help people trust, love, and know themselves enough to pursue whatever it is that's on their heart. Because I used to think, oh, I'm just going to give people a couple tools to be more creative. But I realized, like you, it really is a more holistic journey. So I wonder for yourself if you wouldn't mind sharing your best tactics to reach these goals, which are self-love, self-trust, and self-knowledge? Oh, what a great question. For me, in order to reach self-love, self-trust, and self-knowledge, 
it comes down to, again, we sort of talked about it a lot, but it's giving yourself permission to understand what your values are and what your needs are. But beyond that, it is truly about utilizing self-compassion and recognizing that you don't have to be anything other than yourself, right? So just kindness over judgment and leaning into the concept of self-acceptance, recognizing that there are going to be multiple parts of who you are and just embracing each one of those parts and allowing those parts to, again, we can expand out. There can be a part, like I have the part of me that's the people pleaser. She's not gone, but when she pops up, I kind of talk to her. And I recognize that I don't have to give her all the attention. I can expand out to these other parts. So it's really about allowing for all your parts to be there in order to lead into what you were just talking about with those three tenants. Mm, I love that. I love that. Total self-acceptance. And my final question for you, well, it's kind of like a two-parter, but it is one. It's like there's an A and a B section. (laughs) (laughs) If we could look back to the comedy of six or so years ago and that version of you right before you took the leap and you now were standing in the same room looking at each other, what do you think she would say to you today and why? She would say, I am so freaking proud of you for sticking with it and just going after the thing that you wanted. And what would you say to her and why? I would say, thank you for trusting me. Thank you. Thank you for what you do in the world. And thank you for helping people embrace their full selves and be a little gentler with themselves. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks for listening and thanks to my guest, Comedy Wood. For more info on Comedy, follow her at It's Authentic Me and check out her website, Comedy Wood, that's K-A-M-I-N-I-W-O-O-D.com to find her podcast, Rise Up, and get all of her amazing books. Thanks to Rachel Fulton for helping edit and associate produce this episode. Follow her at Rachel M. Fulton. Thanks to Liz Full for the show's theme music. Follow her at Liz Full. And again, thank you. If you like what you heard today, remember to rate, review, and follow the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Share the show with a friend and post about it on social media. Tag me at Lauren LaGrasso and at Unleash Your Inner Creative, and I will repost to share my gratitude. Also tag the guests at It's Authentic Me so they can share as well. My wish for you this week is that you prioritize yourself and your needs and know you don't have to be perfect. No one's perfect, but you don't have to strive for perfection to deserve kindness, love, and just true acceptance. I love you and I believe in you. Talk with you next week.